Well, if you're feeling a little confused this morning about who's standing up here, that's okay. Uh, my wife's uncle says that Bob and I could be twins. And if you can't tell us apart, that's okay. Uh, my name is Joe Dilbeck. I've been a member here since the beginning. I've been asked to speak a few times, and they keep letting me come back, so that's wonderful. I'm privileged and honored to be here. Um, I did want to mention that Bob has received a sabbatical. He's going to have five weeks off. It's wonderful. It's only been 11 years, so <laughs> that's a good thing. Uh, I did get a BA in religion. It was 1978. And I also got a master's degree sometime in the last 10 years in history. So Bob sends me a note and says, would you like to speak on the Holy Spirit and the 4th of July? <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'll work that out. Because typically I do, oftentimes, uh, I have in the past spoken uh, on this topic because I have an interest in history. Now, I will tell you that the difference between a pastor and a teacher, if you were to talk to a pastor, the pastor is very interested in what you have to say. But as a teacher, I'm very interested in what I have to say. <laughs> so, uh, and the truth is, I'm absolutely fascinated by this topic. I am. Um, and so as you look at this, you see some things up there that in our divided and difficult political environment, you might agree with or disagree with or come down to one side or the other. But I, I chose the title Christian American on purpose. And if you looked at Bob's original uh, little teaser that he sends out, he said that the verse that we're talking about um, applies to all people everywhere, Egyptians and Romans and uh, people in Africa, that your loyalty first is to Christ, that you are a Christian first and an American second. I mean that on purpose. Now, clearly what this does, it puts our loyalty and our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven first. We are, therefore, all of us, strangers traveling in a strange land. It doesn't matter what country you're in or where you are. And oddly, interestingly, we are Jews by adoption. Uh, we have the same relationship to God as Solomon did, the same relationship as Moses did, and the same relationship especially as Jesus has with the Father. We are recipients of grace, and all of our blessings come to us as a result of his kindness and his mercy, not because we are something special, and unique, and we deserve these blessings. But because we honor him first, we have received blessings, but not because we're so special that we deserve it. And there is a political and a contractual part that we have to play. It's the same part we play in all of our earthly existence. You have these kinds of things with your wife and with your school and with your employer. There's a relationship there. And we can only experience joy and successful living in a proper relationship with God that infuses and fills in our family relationships, our love life, you name it. God's the center of all that. Now, again, I am a teacher, so if I don't torture you a little bit, you won't feel like you've been to school today. So, um, I love symbols. I love to think about things. And so, this is a, what would be called an allegory. It's a picture of something. But it's not all of that thing. And because I think the way I think, I'm going to explain everything in the world you need to know in this picture about algebra. You now know everything you need to know about algebra. Honestly, in this picture. Uh, algebra is an Arabic word that... Oh, I have to read it. I want to make sure I say this right. 
to balance, to put in front of, to oppose, to set equal. So essentially, algebra, the balancing, the setting equal, the fixing of things, means that everything that happens on this side is exactly the same as everything that happens on this side. And whatever you do in algebra, that's what makes algebra work. Multiply, divide, subtract, exponents, square roots, same thing has to happen on the other side. One half is exactly the same as 8 sixteenths. That's algebra. Now, do you think you can go out and do algebra? <laughs> There's a lot more to it, right? So the symbol and the idea is basic, and then you go from there. But it helps us think a little bit more clearly about the topic. So now we're going to talk about another easy concept, the Trinity. Now, does it explain everything about the Trinity? I think the Trinity probably is so deep and there's so much more to it. I think of it in three dimensions. I think of it as moving through time, as in complete relationship with each other. It's a very complex thing. But we're going to look at it and pull a few things out in relationship to uh, politics. The first thing I want to pull out, the nature of God is primarily relationship. They have been in relationship since before time began. They've always been in relationship. There's interaction. There's trust. There's family. There's balance. That's the Trinity. And, of course, this picture is going to fall short of that. Um, you can think of it in terms of your body, body, soul, and spirit, the way, the truth, and the life, uh, three dimensions. You can think of it all kinds of ways. That is the pattern of the designer of all of creation. There's almost always three aspects and three working parts to almost anything you look at. Now, <clears throat> if you want an A on the exam, you will take notes in that little circle you have on your notepad. You don't have to, but anyway, I did it just thinking that way. We're going to think of the top circle as the Father. We're going to think of the bottom right circle as the Son. And we're going to think of the left-hand circle as the Holy Spirit. You can write those three things down, at least, if you want to. I want you to. Please write that down. Uh, uh, now, these words kind of describe the Father. I'm going to come back to that word forensic in a little bit. But... The whole notion that he is the ground, the foundation, the author of all that makes sense. He's like gravity. He's what's true in the universe. Uh, the sun is physical, practical, tangible, the only part of the Godhead you can actually touch and sit by at a campfire. Wouldn't that be cool? He's the only one in heaven that's got scars in his hands. There's a physical, tangible, practical aspect of the sun. And the Holy Spirit is compassionate and eternal. And I would say, without going too far in this direction, uh, that's the family unit. That which is uh, paternal, that which is maternal, and that which is children. And there are, Now again, is that a complete picture? Do they not have all three parts? Of course they do. But there are, is an aspect to God. Even God the Father is, is described in maternal ways in the Old Testament, as, as loving us more than our own mother loves us, kind of thing. But at any rate, uh, and then again... Rationally, finally, the Greeks have special words. You've heard these words before. The Father must be omniscient. As far as the Greeks are concerned, if he's not omniscient, he's not God. If something which is not all-knowing, you haven't got there yet. He is, of course, omnipotent. And you can't imagine anything more omnipotent than the power of Jesus Christ to redeem the entire world. And, of course, the Spirit is omnipresent. When you ask, how can God be with me everywhere, is the Holy Spirit, he is with you ever in that aspect of himself. So 
he is the way, the truth, the life. He is, he is like your own body, mind, soul, and spirit. And what we're talking about now is how does that affect, leak into our political life, into our corporate life? Uh, I would like to talk, first of all, about the Father. We'll go back to this term. So when you think about God the Father, and I know there's a fill in the blank there. We're going to come back to it. The Father is the rule giver, the establisher of life, the eternal judge. That word forensic I use specifically. You think of CSI, or for those of you who are older, Jack Webb. Just the facts, man. Just the truth. There is a truth. There's an absolute truth. I hold out a rock and I drop it, it falls. It doesn't float away, it doesn't drift off in some other distance, it falls. The Father is responsible for that. Now, as forensic, he's the arbiter of justice, the one who weighs the evidence and determines guilt or innocence. Sadly, we are all guilty. Now, you can debate with him, you can argue with him, you can disagree with him, I don't like it, I don't think it should be that way. Who made you God? How come your opinion matters more than the creator of the entire universe, the one who established all the rules of physics and light and distance and weight and measure belongs to him? Now, what do we do? We pretend. You can fool other people. Oftentimes you can fool yourself, but you aren't going to fool him. None of our sins, our thoughts, or our crimes are hidden from him. So, here are some scripture to back this up. This is in Second Chronicles, chapter 7. At this point, Solomon has built the temple, and he's dedicating the temple. And this is what God is saying to his people as they've come to establish a relationship with him. Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. People who are called by my name exist in every culture, in every time, in every place, not just Americans, Russians, Romans, Ugandans. People who are called by his name exist everywhere in the world. And if those people establish a relationship, my eyes will open and my ears will be attentive to every prayer made in this place. For I have chosen this temple and set it apart to be holy. That's a specific reference to a geographical, physical location. God has an individual relationship and he also has a corporate relationship. He established this bond, this political relationship with Israel. This will be a place where my name will be honored forever. I will always watch over it for it is dear to my heart. But if you or your descendants abandon me and disobey the decrees and commands I have given you and if you serve and worship other gods then I will uproot the people from this land that I have given them. I will reject this temple that I have made holy to honor my name. I will make it an object of mockery and ridicule among the nations. There are consequences to disobedience. God is not this mushy, forgiving, senile old grandpa who just ignores our sins. He records them. He knows them. He registers them. Our relationship with the Father is damaged by disobedience and rebellion. His judgment is perfect. Well, I don't think his judgment is perfect. He's a witness to our emotions. He's a witness to our motivations. He's a witness to our actions. And though this temple is impressive now, 
All who pass by will be appalled. They will ask, why did the Lord do such terrible things to this land and to this temple? And the answer will be, because his people abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt, and they worshipped other gods instead and bowed down to them. That is why he brought all these disasters on them. So if we are to be people who are called by his name, this is the first fill-in, number one, our relationship with the Father will always begin with repentance. You are not God. You are a mess. I am a mess. We don't stand before him and shake our fist and tell him how, how to do things. He tells us. He's the author, the finisher, the perfecter, the one who does it all. So in terms of citizenship, in this place or any other place, we begin, you can't go anywhere. If he's not in charge, who is? All of us. We all have our opinion. If we do not acknowledge his authority, his rule, his creativity, we are nowhere. Which means, how many of us can stand? None of us. It's a pretty downbeat message. Let's just go home now. It's hopeless. This is, this is terrible. Fortunately, as you all know, God didn't leave us in that state, condemned, lost, and broken. He sent his son, the incarnation, the coming of the Messiah. Into this mess that is our life comes this one bearing forgiveness. Really, what could be more practical than that? You've been rescued from the pit, from the fire, from death, from hell, from loss. That's really very practical. So the second one is our relationship with the Son is always practical. There is justification, there's redemption, there's hope, there's a saving, complete work of the cross. Complete, final. And we talk about being free in the songs. We're only free because he died for us, because he did a practical, physical, actual thing which changed everything. And I have a verse for this too. Look, Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal as friends. How cool is that? Like I said, sit around a campfire. Best stories, best fire builder, best cook. Comes in and shares a meal with me. Oh, this is the best. Having been absolutely condemned, we are now absolutely justified. How then shall we live? Well, the Holy Spirit. Christ leaves, and Bob talked about this before. If I don't leave, you won't receive the Comforter. I leave and you're better off now because omnipresent Holy Spirit will be with each of you, all of you, all the time, everywhere, in everything you do. That's pretty wonderful as well. You are now mentally, physically, emotionally a complete person. We think, we feel, we do, it all goes together. Our relationship with the Holy Spirit is always, third third fill-in, always productive. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There is no law against these things. The fruits of the Spirit speak for themselves. If these things are missing from our choices, can we truly be acting in concert with the Father and the Son? If there is no compassion, if there is no love, joy, peace, patience, kindness as you deal with your children, as you deal with your spouse, as you deal with your employees, are you really acting in concert with the Father, with the Godhead? If our compassion 
tips into mushiness and thoughtless, impractical feeling, can it really be righteous? Everything we choose, everything our government chooses, has to be balanced. There's a truth to it, there's a love to it, and there's an action to it. Go warm, be warm, and be filled. That doesn't work. That's not enough. There's also food and comfort and blankets and things that go along with it. But again, you have to ask yourself whether those things are truly in line. So all these things work in concert. We talked about this a little bit before. Uh, and, it, and I think if you think of this kind of balancing right in the center, everything is happening always in any decision. Uh, I think I can make the case that the Muslims are very comfortable with the Father. In Hebrew, Abba is Daddy. Allah is the Father. And He is a judge, and He is complete, and He is all about righteousness, and He is good. And in that tilting toward nothing but righteousness and truth and, what do you call it, justice, justice sometimes involves vengeance. So if someone in that faith goes to the extreme of blowing themselves up, in their mind, they're justified fully. They're committing a righteous act, correcting a falsehood. But it's out of balance. And I think if the, the Jews come along, and they have the Father and the Spirit, and they have a more compassionate view of things, and there's mercy and, and kindness in the Jewish religion, but it isn't quite complete, mostly because it doesn't include everybody in the world. It's kind of a family-only kind of a thing. So I think I make the claim we have the complete revelation. Because we have all three aspects of the Father. So, and if you think about how this works, my emotions point me toward knowing and doing and doing. I think my way into a feeling, and, I, and my actions are in line with what I know to be true and righteous and healthy. And again, those things are swirling and working and all working in balance. So how does this apply, finally, to our political situation? Um... Okay, my friend Alexis de Tocqueville, perhaps you've heard of this guy, wrote a book called Democracy in America. He's a Frenchman. Uh, he was born in 1805 into an aristocratic family. Now, if you know your history, if anything, you know about Napoleon, and you know about the guillotines, and the up at, uh, uh, what was it, 11 years after our revolution, the French have theirs, but their revolution kind of goes south and turns south. They're cutting people's heads off. They're quite radical. Uh, his mother and father are both put in jail, what's called the Reign of Terror. Uh, and then it, the pendulum kind of swings back the other way. And so the left was in charge of revolution. Now the right's in charge of restoring order. And poor Alexis is kind of caught in the middle. He doesn't fit in either group. He can't get a job. So he and his friend Beaumont secure permission to come to America and study our penal system because <laughs> we're so good at locking criminals up. And they want to come and see what we're doing. So he spends, I'm pretty sure it's a year, about 1831, traveling around, starting in Rhode Island. Wanders all around and observes the country. And he writes, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there in her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there, in her democratic congress and massless constitution, and it was not there, not until I went into the churches of America 
and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness, did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be great, ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. De Tocqueville was referring specifically to American commitment to prayer and attributed our success to dependence upon and acknowledgement of God. In the context of our founding documents, there was never to be a state church, an approved denomination, a favored and supported clerical class. Yet the sense was that there were good intentions, honest support, and biblical literacy of our citizens, and these things would carry us through any crisis. So that's what I mean by being a Christian American. Your Christianity informs your patriotism. Now, Nancy and I went to see Franklin Graham a month or so ago at the Oxnard Park. Um, And it was interesting. He got up and the first thing he said was, I want you to pray for the governor. I want you to pray for the president. I want you to pray for your state senators. I want you to pray for your city officials. And pray that they would allow the spirit to work in our hearts, that we would love our neighbors who serve us. And this is true in all aspects of our life, but we're thinking today a little bit about government. Now, no system on the planet will function better than the people running it. It has often been said that the Russian Constitution is a far finer document than our own U.S. Constitution. Well-written piece of paper promising all kinds of rights, which they ignore. The Constitution, frequently enough, has been different because there have been Christian men and women of character running the government. A spirit of compassion, honesty, integrity, commitment, and loyalty springing up in their hearts and animating the acts of courage and justice and patriotism. And when you pray for President Trump, when you pray for Governor Brown, when you pray for whoever you pray for, don't you want that to be what's happening in their hearts? That they would be animated by the spirit, they'd be motivated by the truth, that they would be willing to act in a way that's not simply party politics. That's what we're praying for. John Adams said, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. With that, we're almost done. The application is fairly simple. Uh, Be involved with your local government. Run for the school board. Join the PTA. Show up at school functions. Make your voice heard in the principal's office and not just when you have a complaint. Let us make our presence known as workers, as helpers, as supporters, and also as thinking, feeling, and doing citizens. That's the Holy Spirit at work in our government. Let's pray.